Well, good afternoon, FS Club members, and welcome to an FS Club webinar this afternoon in London. Um, the title of today's event is Tuttles All the Way Down, Digital Plumbing Upgrades Essential for Financial Services to Progress. And we have as our guest today, Dr. Lita Glyptus, who's the Chief Client Officer at 10 Times Banking, which of course is a uh, very, very interesting new initiative with Anthony Jenkins. Now, you know me, I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien, and it really is a privilege to be able to introduce so many of these fascinating webinars. And I can only do so because our sponsors arranged here before you are wonderfully tolerant and allow us to range widely and freely across all sorts of areas to do with technology, economics, and finance. And Lita will be talking about the breadth of the global uh, infrastructure that needs to change to support many of the improvements uh, that we all seek in the way in which financial services supports us and our economies. I'm not going to try and explain today's title, but I will try and explain today's agenda. So my job is to get out of the way as quickly as possible. Uh, I will leave Lita to explain the title, which has an interesting background. Uh, you, you got her bio, CV, and even an explanation of the title when you registered and when you signed up. So I won't repeat that. Uh, but I might say just a few quick uh, obvious answers. Firstly, yes, the slides are up and you'll see them. Uh, secondly, the presentation will go up in approximately 48 hours. And uh, finally, we uh, will send all of the Q&A to Lita so she can get back in touch with you. To have that uh, question and answers, please use the GoToWebinar facility for sending questions through to me and I will introduce them into the conversation. Uh, no point in emailing me or texting me or WhatsApping me or signaling me. I'm here with you. Uh, so please use that facility and all of those questions and comments will be sent to Lita with your email so she can get back in touch with you if you wish uh, for any purpose. And so uh, with no more ado, uh, Lita, the floor is very much yours. Thank you so much for having me. And, and thank you so much for so many of you being here. Um, as Michael said, there is uh, quite a lot of material I wanna go through today. I will be sort of bombarding you with some of this uh, content. And my hope is that as we go through all of this, um, you will jot down questions, jot down thoughts. I will not dwell on quite a lot of the content I, um, I present here. I just wanna guide you through some ideas, uh, but I'm happy to share it. I'm happy to delve into it. I'm happy to go through the detail with you um, later. But let me start with uh, our title, as Michael said. Um, the, um, sorry, this doesn't like me right now. There we go. Um, the, uh, the idea behind the title for this piece came from the, uh, the mythology of you know the origin of the world when uh, when people start thinking about digitizing their infrastructure digitizing their businesses it's a if we if we take our minds back to when this journey started for most most banks um it was a pretty existential question it was a case of well how big is this and how deep does it need to go does it transform our entire world or does it change a little bit of it um and the realization over the past 15 years is that it actually touches every part of the world. So very often when we talk about digital transformation, we say it's it's like that myth that the universe rests on, on the back of, of a few elephants resting on the back of a giant turtle floating through space. And that's complicated enough to wrap your head around. But what happens after the, the 
turtle. What happens under the turtle? Well, it's turtles all the way down. And turtles all the way down has been a standing joke uh, for digital transformation that actually every step of the way as we're trying to transform, we're finding that there's another layer and another layer and another layer and the journey is never ending. But as you um, notice, this piece is not called Turtles All the Way Down. Um, it's called Tuttles All the Way Down. And uh, the reason we call it that is twofold. One is that the whole idea of Turtles All the Way Down is, is cute and it's funny, but it presents us as practitioners with a philosophical problem. And let's face it, philosophical problems are not the kinds of problems we're going to be solving when we've got banks to run and, and, and work to transform. If this is a never-ending piece of work, uh, a transformation effort with no end, then how on earth do we even go about doing the work? Um, and, and our answer is, it's not infinite, although it's pretty deep. And it goes um, deeper than the experience layer. It goes deeper than um, the type of innovation experiments we've hoped would be enough. It goes into the plumbing on which our banking infrastructure runs. Um, and plumbing is what we're going to talk about. And the uh, the title is a reference to a film that uh, may have been filmed before some of the people in our audience were born, which makes me feel very, very um, elderly but it does feature a rogue engineer who believes in plumbing and wants to fix those problems um meaningfully and and that's that's something i want to come back to because part of the the message i guess i want to start with is that we've been doing digital transformation for 15 years almost and we've kind of been doing it wrong so let's go back to how banking comes into turtles and um plumbing the starting point um, that I want us to, to play with for a moment is that before the digital journey began for banks, there was a period of considerable stability before. Um, and particularly when I started my career, when I actually first met Michael about 20 years ago, uh, banks had a, a, a set identity, uh, a gravitas that pretty much said, we are who we are. It has taken us a long time to get here. We're in control of our destinies. We're important people in gray suits. And we manage your granny's pension. We manage money that goes into global infrastructure. We have responsibility. We need to take things seriously. The regulator wants us to take things seriously. And although we see things changing, we are in control of the narrative. The future is coming, but it's coming to us. And we will make decisions. Um, and if you think back to the last decade and a half of transformation, most of the conversations in the first half of that period were about banks making choices, feeling absolutely in control of how far, how fast and how deep digital transformation would go. There was definitely a discussion around the concerns of disintermediation, but mostly it was about the choices we were going to make, the education we wanted to get for ourselves. Um, and the uh, the things we would potentially choose to leave on the table. And then fintech happened. And by that, I mean a period of lasting and profound change. Um, it is a completely arbitrary timeline. I have seen timelines that choose different events to signal the, the beginning of that of that transformation. But the duration of it, the length of it is, is a matter of, of great um, 
agreement and consensus. It has been about 15 years of, of this conversation of transformation being ever-present, change being the new normal, and the starting point of a bank being in control as this future is coming down the path um, has proven itself to not be entirely true. And Turtle's come back into this now uh, because as the realization that this fintech thing, this transformation thing, this digital thing was coming at us at a speed that meant we weren't as much in control of it as we had initially thought, or we weren't in a position to uh, ingest it the way we um, originally thought. Banking tried to cut it down to size, and every bank in the world tried to say, okay, this is this is new, this is big, but we've done this before. Let's figure out the piece of it that is most important. Let's find the turtle in this sea of turtles that is enough. So what started as a as a sort of set of conversations in the boardroom became a bit of a cottage industry. Uh, analysis of who's spending what, hoping that that holds the answer. That didn't. Analysis of who's disrupting what. If we cut the work we do in different segments, will we find who disintermediates us, who disrupts our world? Will that find us the silver bullet? That didn't work so much. Is geography the answer? If we spend time and money figuring out where these things happen, will we get the answer to where we need to focus? The one thing we need to do in a sea of many. The predictions year on year have been getting vaguer and as I'm sure you've realized, scarier, looking at bigger and wider and ever more complex situations. We started paying quite a lot of money for these reports, hoping that we will get the answer. And increasingly, the answer we're getting is everything. Do all the stuff. Um, this is one of my favorite management trend reports from um, 2019. That pretty much says, do all of it. So before I go on to the next question, I'd love to do a little poll of the people we have in the room with us. You all have to make decisions. So when it comes to navigating disruption over the last 15 years, you've had a taste of influencers and pundits telling you what's important, what comes next, fintech entrepreneurs, analysts and academics, and each other. A quick poll, who do you trust? Michael, do you wanna jump in? Hi, Lida. We're just up to over 60%. I'm just going to give the audience a few more seconds and then we'll close the poll. Great. Yeah, we're up to 80% now, Lida. Um, nice. Coming back. Well, it's a, it's a tightly bound community. We trust nice. each other. <laughs> I was hoping that would be the answer. Um, fantastic. Well, if we go back, back to this and say, um, who do you trust each other? Well, so do the people who are selling us reports. This is one of my absolute favorite um, slides showing that the vast majority of this little cottage industry of guesswork actually is exactly that. It is guesswork. And a lot of the the, the highly respected studies are essentially people coming to decision makers such as yourselves asking us the questions that we're trying to figure out the answers to, repackaging them and passing them back to us. In other words, um, this is a, a Deloitte 11 years of research. If this doesn't give you a, a bit of a Star Wars uh, feel and, and a bit of a headache, I don't know what would. But what we're seeing is that in 15 years of observing the trends, we have achieved two things. We have discovered that there is no silver bullet, and if anyone has the answer, 
it is not outside our offices and our industry. And the second is that we actually uh, wasted precious, precious time trying to answer a question that doesn't actually have an answer because all we discovered is that it is turtles all the way down after all. All the things are happening all at once. So how does that help us and where do plumbers come into this? The main thing that um, we discovered as an industry in the last 15 years is that knowing that a conversation is important is not the same as knowing what to do with it. I remember speaking, um, in fact, Michael was in the room uh, about 10 years ago to uh, um, a, a, a decision maker in the organization I worked in um, at the time. That person saying, do I need to learn it before I retire? And that was one of the most telling conversations I have had in my career, because understanding something is important isn't the same as knowing where to plug it in and what to do with it for your business. If we look back almost an equal, in fact, exactly an equal period of time, we'll see a whole host of capabilities that didn't exist then, uh, which teaches us two things. One, guesswork is entirely pointless because none of us could have guessed those things were coming um, and even if we had been able to guess them it wouldn't be the same as knowing how to transform our organization so after 15 years of playing at this game what we're left with is so what and i have a few takeaways i want to share with you for your for your reactions the first one is that we've been answering the wrong exam question we've been looking at digital transformation in terms of creativity and innovation and what we learned in 15 years is that all of this stuff is absolutely real absolutely scalable and actually very very exciting but none of it is light touch none of the new technology we've looked at has a single easy to implement answer everything comes with new business models, robust infrastructure, and business imperatives. Looking at a sea, an avalanche of change, the only way to decide what's important is not by looking at what works somewhere else, but actually at having some hard conversations about your business and what needs to happen um, within your organization and in what sequence. So if we reset the exam question and think about what we've learned over the last 15 years in terms not of innovation and creativity, but survival in terms of what each business and our industry as a whole needs to do in order to continue living or existing um, in, in a time of great uh, transformation, we will probably start seeing completely um, different trends, uh, especially if we look back. I would say that one of the biggest realizations of the last 15 years is that we absolutely are who we are. That was true. The starting point of the profitability structures, organizational structures, relationships, technology that we have is our starting point. It is not necessarily a justification for choices made or not made, but it is an inevitable starting point. We have to work with what we have but we have to make choices and we have to make choices within a framework that is not as much in our control as we thought. What the last 15 years have taught us is that the party can happen without us. And by us, I mean us as decision makers inside the financial services industry, whatever the organization we represent. If we have learned one thing in the last 15 years, it is that, um, this is not a world that will wait for approval and, and buy-in from, from the banks. What does that mean if we unpack it? In the last 15 years, as the um, financial services world globally was busy at, at looking at what is changing and where to place their bets, the three biggest changes happened outside 
the doors of our organizations. The biggest change in my book, and one of my favorites, truth be told, is that the regulator has changed globally. The regulator has changed fundamentally, both in how they regulate and what they regulate. Um, for a very long time, the regulator will never permit it was the door that shut in the face of most new ideas. And yet we're facing with a regulator uh, in most geographies, definitely in the UK, definitely in Europe, but also in quite a lot of areas in APAC, um, that says, I will look at what is possible and I will advise what is desirable on the back of it. And, and that conversation is nowhere near as static and nowhere near as um, slow as it used to be. The second thing that has changed is the market. The competition is very similar still, particularly for those who do traditional banking, traditional FI, even those who don't do traditional banking. I would suggest that the um, the competitors inside, sorry about that, uh, it can go away now, uh, the competitors that are the sort of newcomers into our space, particularly um, retail banking and, and, and sort of traditional um, transactional relationships have very similar business models. And yet the market is changing because our customers, institutional and, and, and individual, are consuming digital services in other parts of their life that are extremely high value. And they're teaching them they're teaching them to want more, which means that the customer and the regulator are creating a possibility for an openness to the market that is absolutely not in our control the way it used to be. So what does that mean? It means that the last 15 years we've spent as an industry pretty much learning what is possible in the hope that one bit of it would emerge as the answer. That has not happened, but the learnings of what we have actually ingested in the last 15 years are super, super useful because the era that we're now very much in requires a very different approach to technology to deliver the how of your business. Um, sorry about that. But not, neither the technology nor the landscape scanning will answer the question of what should we do. Uh, technology in itself sadly never had that answer. Uh, and looking at what everyone else is doing and where the biggest disruption has not yielded the answer. Sadly, the uh, hardest and most valuable question of what should I do with all these new capabilities has to absolutely be uh, conversation driven within our organizations. Um, what the last 15 years have absolutely also taught us is that waiting and seeing what will work is a choice that has been made by many, but it is not a strategy. Thankfully for a lot of the people who have waited in the hope that our, um, an answer will become apparent, that was a strategy many opted for. So there are very few organizations that are truly, truly ahead of the curve. Um, unluckily, it has translated to a lot of time and energy wasted for, for the uh, industry. My message is that the era of optionality that has defined the last 15 years absolutely needs to end. Um, and by looking at the choices you as an organization, all of us need to make, you have to answer the, the what and the how, right? What am I doing from a strategy perspective and how am I doing it from a, a technology perspective? And this is where your plumbers come in. I, I promised you that both the, the, um, the turtles and the uh, plumbers would come in and, and, and here they do. We have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what to do through the technology that would prevail. Um, 
that is not how the conversation plays out anymore. The reality is all of that technology is viable. All of that technology is being used by someone out there, potentially in our space, potentially not. The question has to start with what you want to do internally and leverage that technology to deliver. But it's not just your product people and your business people that need to be around the table for this conversation because of this, possibly my absolutely favorite um, comic in describing how banks have tried to move with the time in, in this digital in this digital world. Because when I say that the last 15 years have been the, the, the sort of years of optionality, I don't for a moment mean that decisions haven't been made. Decisions have been made. Investment has been made. Um, experiments have gone ahead. Businesses are digitizing. But as we have gone down the path of what's the smallest piece of this, I can engage with and constantly discovering that there, the small piece actually is much bigger than we had originally anticipated. We have started from the glass, from the digital experience, from the visible digital offering. And as we're pushing down our organization, we got to the very unsexy plumbing, the place where a lot of thought and a lot of creativity and a lot of money potentially has to go to create digital infrastructure for the bank um, that wouldn't be very visible. The return on investment will be potentially hard to justify. And it didn't seem very exciting. So we left it as long as possible. And this happens. And um, if you tell me that your organization doesn't have this possibility um, and, and the dangers that go with it somewhere within it, frankly, I'll probably not believe you, but I'd love to have this conversation. So it's time to make choices and it's time to make hard choices because it's not about whether we should have an app anymore. It's not a choice about whether we should have digital channels. It is not about investing in UX. These were the easy choices. They didn't feel easy at the time, but actually with hindsight, they were the easy choices. Now we need to make some fundamental choices about what the organizations need to look like all the way down in terms of investment in core infrastructure, the really unsexy stuff that nobody really wants to talk about, that determines the options that you're going to have tomorrow as new technology keeps coming, as new regulation keeps coming, and as your customers continue becoming savvier and savvier by the day. What happens next? Well, what happens next is that the thing that we have tried to avoid thinking about, hoping that one of the other turtles would, uh, would, would give the answer, is now absolutely front and center of the decisions we need to make. Infrastructure is the thing we need to be talking about. The rails that both each individual financial institution and the industry is moving on, the unexciting, the boring utility stuff has to be turtles all the way down to support an era of higher expectation and increasingly different economics. And those of you who have seen some of the names who are with us today, those of you who've been on this journey long enough know that one of the biggest challenges we have had to date is to square our traditional economic model the way of making money with the increasing expectations, cost of doing business and lighter touch um, ways of delivering services. That tension is only going to get worse. So we need to revamp our infrastructure so we can actually leave some of our legacy costs behind and really play into this um, new era with different economics. And once we've done all of that hard work, and it is going to be hard work, there is a, a hard discussion about brand permission because the avoidance of some of these choices has 
damage the um, the way that some of the more mature players, your consumers and your customers out there, are seeing the traditional FIs, where they're going, well, you know, how do I trust that you will do the right thing when you haven't done it in the last 15 years? Now, if this didn't sound bad enough, uh, there's actually one more catch. I did say it's about survival, but not about innovation. And the reality is it's a little bit about both, but it is not about both as separate departments doing something uh, on the outskirts of your organization. This is about the step change of doing all these digital things as another thing that we needed to do uh, and, and coming to the realization that it's actually the way we do business now. It is not a channel. It is not a product. It is not a department that is looking at digitization. It is actually a radically different way of delivering the service to the customer in a way that they're happy to consume it. The infrastructure is actually a hygiene factor. It's not the differentiator that will make you um, the, uh, the winner in this game, but it is the hygiene factor that will continue the ability to play in this game. The battle will continue to be uh, fought around the business proposition, but without that, uh, the plumbing upgrade, um, that battle will just sail away because the organization will topple with that little thing that the dude in Nebraska has been um, has been upgrading. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to hear your challenges. But as a, as a parting thought before I pause and let and let you jump in with your questions, is that if you knew all of that, um, if you suspected all of that, if you're already working on all of that, for me the most important question is not what technology will you invest in next. It's not what your business strategy. I suspect you know the answer to both of those things already. My question is, do you know who your rogue plumbers are in your organization? Do you know who the people are who have the vision and the hunger to fix it all the way down, to increase its stability, to increase the hygiene factor that nobody knows, but they know it will be the key to survival as this technological avalanche of creativity and innovation from the outside keeps coming into your organization. They know how to make you more likely to survive with the unglamorous work of plumbing. If you know who your organization's rogue plumbers are, you have the highest degree of success in this game. If you don't know, I'd say it's an interesting exercise to find them. And if you can't find them, hire some. Thank you very much for your time. I'd love to hear your questions and thoughts now. Well, that's great. Thank you very much, Lita. We've got quite a few, <laughs> quite a few comments and questions. Uh, just before we get cracking, uh, what is a uh, ten times role in the in the plumbing? And oh, we are absolutely plumbers. <laughs> We are plumbers. We are creating a cloud native um, core banking system in the belief that the utility part of, of the rails should be exactly that, ubiquitous, scalable, flexible, and available so that the banks could create, could focus on creating their value added um, propositions on top of it. So um, obviously uh, the, the company has been created by a former banker uh, who said, I wanted to solve the problems I suffered from when I was on the other side of the table. Uh, Bob McDowell makes a really interesting point. Does the velocity of change inhibit rational selection of options? And in consequence, you know, do financial institutions just to have to go with the flow? I think that's a very, very, a very sensible question. And the answer is 
inevitably and i and i do think that we lost um we wasted a lot of time believing that we didn't have to go with the flow and that we would control the pace and time um and he's absolutely right that uh the realization that that's not the case and we have to to some extent go with the flow and learn from it it's absolutely there um i i also agree with the implication that you can't understand everything you can't learn everything there's not enough time but you have a business to run and the uh, ecosystem and the and the hygiene factors and the the climate in which you're doing it is changing you have to go with the flow to the extent that you don't believe you control it anymore but you have to make some choices and and the the distance between um i have all the choices and rabbit in headlight was crossed extremely quickly and we need to come back a bit uh, we need to come back not to a place where we think we control this narrative because we absolutely don't but to make choices within this flow that we absolutely have to go with um, we've got um, an interesting point here from Dan Fianney. Why have incumbent banks been so slow to choose a cloud-native mobile-first strategy? Hi, Dan. Um, the answer to that is a little bit of everything I have um, flagged already. Um, if you asked them at the time, they would probably have told you they're doing it. But they were doing it in a way that um, suggested that they didn't understand the timelines in which this would be required. They expected that they would be in more control of what, when, why, and how. Um, then on top of it, two things that I think are super important that I didn't mention is that the unwillingness to invest in brand new plumbing is why your high street bank offers very different functionality on the mobile and the website. It's invisible. Most consumers don't think too much in terms of the capability in front of them. And the bank didn't really want to burn all the cash of going all the way down and all the way across. So doing the thing that would be most visible, most um, shiny, most meaningful without touching the plumbing has been a conscious decision for a long time. And I think the third piece is um, a lack of imagination. The, the view from your desk is compelling. And as this world started changing with the best intentions in the world, a lot of people try to digitize what they saw around them and disrupt the day-to-day -day business the least they could, which is an understandable urge. Um, and until there were some challengers in the mix showing us what good looked like, um, I don't think there were necessarily people inside the banks who could imagine it. Uh, Rob Wilmot points out that there have been a lot of mergers and acquisitions in the banking and financial sectors over the past 15 years. And his question is, is the compounding of inherited legacy systems and the associated uh, claim that there's been a lack of uh, integration and in institutional memory, is this a myth or a reality in your opinion? There's... Uh... Obviously, every every experience uh, has its uniqueness, right? I have seen organizations take the opportunity of a big merger to slash through some of that legacy. And I've seen organizations do it terribly and end up with the most convoluted estates. Um, I haven't seen anyone 
start with bad intentions. And that's why I hesitated. Nobody starts with bad intentions. There's always a very compelling reason. Regulatory stability, continued service um, that people choose to go the way they choose to go to. But I've worked in organizations that had 17 instances of the same piece of software because um, the relative cost of cleaning out the mess uh, versus the urgent requirements somewhere else in the organization meant that it was a decision that was constantly kicked down the can. And the reality of having to balance those decisions is, is always complicated. And everyone feels that their decisions are, um, are, are unique and, um, and, and, you know, everyone feels they're a snowflake. Um, every time I see a big legacy organization coming together with another big org legacy organization, I groan inwardly a little bit because you will inevitably end up with a little bit of spaghetti because we don't always know how systems are used. We know what they were designed for, but users, as you well know, are weird and wily creatures. I do remember uh, working in an organization a few years ago. We grandfathered a system. Uh, it had been socialized to all the users that this system was coming to the end of its life. Um, what we didn't know was that there was a bunch of people who had view of the system. They weren't editors. And as far as we were concerned, they weren't users, but they were leveraging the information in that system to inform some pretty significant upstream activity. Um, and they were really unhappy with me because I was just at the wrong place at the wrong time representing this piece of work. Does the merger represent an opportunity to say we will create a go forward infrastructure? Yes. Have we seen anyone do it as boldly as that? No. Would it be expensive and time consuming to do it? Yes. And there's there's no there's no quick fix to this. So I, I want to be empathetic and sympathetic because this is not easy. We've done the easy stuff. Okay. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'd, I'd be kind of curious uh, how bad you really think the plumbing is because Hugh Purser says, it sounds like the ego-driven leadership of the past may be on borrowed time, or is that too hopeful? <laughs> I, I, I want to come in defense of bankers for a second. I, I don't deny for a moment that there is a lot of that. There's a lot of ego-driven leadership. But there's also a lot of knowing what you know, right? People were uh, promoted on the basis of skills and behaviors. And all of a sudden, we're telling them that your skills and behaviors are super valuable in maintaining the business now. But you need a whole host of new skills and behaviors at the same time to transform the business. It's a, it's an impossible task in many ways. Um, and, and some... Some of the best intentions lead us to to the wrong places. <clears throat> I do um, I do believe that the choices being made now are very very important. Uh, I, I worked with a number of banks over the last few months. Uh, COVID has been a, a very interesting inflection point because it it removed some choices, particularly for banks that had an inadequate estate for their own teams to to operate. If you didn't have um, enough investment in your plumbing so that people could work from home, you were presented with no choice but to do something about it. But um, but I did have this conversation with actually three different banks in three different geographies who were saying that when their rel um, respective governments came out and said there should be a mortgage holiday, they had two choices, to throw people at the problem 
or to rethink their infrastructure. It would probably take the same amount of time, but not the same amount of the same people's time. So to get a bunch of COBOL engineers out of retirement, and I'm not exaggerating here, was an easier political decision to make to keep the executives focused on the corporate loan book that was creaking because of COVID, um, on, on, on um, solutions for clients, on looking after teams. I don't want to underestimate for a second how difficult these decisions are, but to the point raised, whether it's ego or not, we are on borrowed time because the pace of change around the banking institutions has been much faster than the pace of change within them. And the maturity of the market and the regulator means that the bar keeps rising. <clears throat> and um, we've left the hardest stuff. I don't want to say last because the journey doesn't end, but we've left the harder stuff. We've done the easier bits and they didn't feel easy. Okay. Um, I had a few questions down myself I wanted to ask you. Um, one of them was uh, really in many other sectors, and this technology that we're talking about is IT, in many other sectors, people give a lot more back. You know, there's an entire shareware movement, uh, uh, industry, industries, uh, banks have been traditionally very selfish. And I can tell you an amusing story once where a, a very large investment bank hauled me in having just spent $8 million on a website purely a publish-only website in 99, and uh, they were shocked that people could actually see all of their HTML code, and I tried to explain to them that's how the system works. Um, yeah. uh, so, you know, this is it, but we want to copyright it. How can we, you know, other people can't take it. So Dan Feeney asked a really good question. Why does Plaid, you know, this open source movement, scare incumbent banks like PNC who've launched some litigation against them? That's a very good question. I, I will not comment specifically on PNC because that's not that's not fair. But I would say Plaid scared the banks at first because they couldn't understand the business model. I remember having this conversation with a lot of banking colleagues at the time, and I felt I was doing a terrible job explaining what Plaid does. But it was from a from a business model perspective, it was offering a service that was too far removed from how the the bank still perceived value creation. Without getting too theoretical, there was a massive leap. Um, and what Platt taught us is that it didn't need the banks to understand it for the market to exist and grow and for the banks to benefit from that thing they didn't understand in a time frame that made them really uncomfortable. So I think there's discomfort in this thing that came in a way that was confusing and this thing becoming extremely valuable to us as well. It's not like it's valuable over there. It's valuable to the people who couldn't understand it. So, so I think Plaid is a very good example of a series of businesses that occupy a space that is invisible and yet super valuable. And if you look at um, what digital transformation and innovation has looked like for most banks so far. It has been about high visibility, low cost, low integration. High visibility because you needed to convince your stakeholders that you're actually doing something and you need to convince yourself. High, uh, low cost because it was always discretionary budgets because lights on is so expensive, understandable. And low integration exactly because we didn't have a plaid and our own 
systems underneath were were not able to do real-time connectivity they weren't to do they weren't able to do real-time connectivity in a way that was secure and left us confident so we we concentrated our efforts in things that were visible and completely missed a trick in the place that was invisible plumbing where genuinely creative ideas such as plaid now you think well, why didn't I think of that? We didn't think of that because it didn't exist and we didn't know we had a need for it. So uh, without commenting specifically on, on PNC, I do think that that creation of such a lucrative business model in a way that no bank could have thought of is a little bit scary. Hmm. Well, let's um, let, let's take it from another perspective. You know, you had that lovely XKCD slide of the infrastructure, always a fan of XKCD, but coming from an IT perspective, what he's pointing out is the hidden tunnels that keep the whole thing working and on which the banks uh, depend right. enormously, even if they don't fund them or pay for them. Um, uh, this is almost in contrast. Dimitris Futuris wonders, uh, does the necessity for infrastructure to stay in the game imply that smaller and less sophisticated banks will not be able to compete? And would that mean that only external cloud services would be a way out? Uh, yeah, a very good question. We don't know, right? There's an opportunity for smaller players to leapfrog, to actually very creatively and very aggressively think about the really differentiating value additive piece of their business um, and, and create a business logic layer and outsource everything underneath it. Create, um, and, and, and the possibility to do that and lower your operational costs and be truly, truly competitive and make it someone else's problem. The opportunity is there. Is your decision-making capability in the boardroom ready for that? That's the big question. And I think we will see a, a, a massive differentiator in terms of the leadership organizations have, not in terms of their reach. Uh, ultimately, this is absolutely non-differentiating, but it's hygiene. So it's existential. If you don't have the right infrastructure, you will not be able to be compliant or competitive. Having that infrastructure doesn't make you competitive though. The creativity on the business side does. So for me, the smaller players have a unique opportunity to leapfrog ditch their their infrastructure most of them don't have a lot of homegrown systems that they're emotionally attached to so you can leapfrog provided you have the courage in your boardroom to make some pretty unusual decisions for the type of risk profile and decision you've made before um bob mcdowell again uh, you know is there a shortage of plumbers who wants to be a total plumber what are what are its rewards hey. Um, it's such a good question, and there is a shortage of plumbers. Um, Could you um, just expand a little bit about what you think a plumber is? How would I know a plumber if I saw one? Oh, uh, you, 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 you know them, Michael. <laughs> You've been collecting plumbers. Um, I would define a plumber. Um, well, let me define a plumber first, and then let me define a tuttle, because they're a little different. A plumber is someone who can understand how to make the thing work in all the ways that are invisible. So for instance, it is very reassuring for me to see banks setting up SRE departments. Up until very recently, a big bank would not have a site reliability engineer as a job description. The fact that they now understand that there is a DevOps is extremely important. SRE is extremely important as a discipline. Um, that to me is very reassuring because you're seeing that organizations slowly but surely are realizing that there's a whole host of stuff that 
lives under the apps that is required for the apps to operate the way they should. So those guys are plumbers. But what's your tuttle? Your tuttle is someone who can take you from where you are today to where you are tomorrow, where you need to be tomorrow, without setting the building on fire. Because none of us have the luxury of stopping earning, stopping servicing our existing clients, or honoring our regulatory responsibilities. We have to change the ship while we're in it, and we've wasted precious time. And we don't have unlimited budgets. I mean, I can fix this for you if you can give me an empty an empty check, right? But but that's not how it operates. So people who can understand how to make things um, stable, who do the invisible work, these are your plumbers. Hire them if you don't have them. But the people who have the understanding of what that needs to look like, but enough empathy for the business model and enough understanding for your legacy to carve a path that won't always be comfortable and we'll cut a few corners here and there, but we'll get you there. Um, they're your tuttles, and you definitely need them for the journey. Well, sadly, we've come to the end of time. Uh, uh, Hugh Purser summarized that pithily, engineers versus scientists versus rocket scientists. Sorry, That's engineers versus physicists versus rocket scientists. Um, very good, Hugh. Thank you. Um, sadly, we have come to the end of time, and comments are coming in uh, thanking you. You said... Uh, that the era of optionality you know, is over. Um, and I do hope that, uh, although you did sort of put together survival as, as a goal, I'd like to see more people thriving in this space. It ought to be fun and exciting. And I sometimes wonder about uh, the, the entire sector and it, it's almost uh, its incestuous nature as it tries to do this when many other industries, not all, but many other industries do seem to change and do seem to find their inner tuttles. So, uh, I'll leave it at that, if I may. Um, I've got uh, three quick rounds of thanks, if I may. Uh, the first one is uh, to our sponsors. Uh, thank you very much. I hope that today was uh, pretty much right up the street. Technology, economics, finance, and fixing the infrastructure that it relies upon. Um, I'd also like to thank you, the audience. Uh, been very good today. Uh, very nice. And as ever, I won't go through the, the events that are ahead. Merely go to the website and check them out. And Lita, very, very kind of you to take the time and the preparation uh, for today and to share with us your thoughts, especially as you're living, you're living the um, the dream. I don't know, you're, you're living the I'm living my best cattle life. <laughs> That's it. Um, unfortunately, in these uh, days of COVID, I'm unable to open the floodgates of applause that would otherwise be there. I will send you all the nice comments, though. Uh, but may I uh, offer you, if anything else, an ersatz applause with my uh, karmic Korean clapper. And that's what the audience would have done, I, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, we look forward to hearing a lot more about you and your organization uh, as, as it navigates this entire uh, network of piping. So thank you so very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.